I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, anthropologist David H. Price, author of such books as Weaponizing Anthropology and Cold War Anthropology, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the growth of dual-use anthropology, returns to discuss his latest book, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. In this conversation, David and I will delve into the history of the American surveillance state and how intelligence agencies have spied on and monitored numerous activists deemed to be radical subversives over the years. This includes everyone from liberal anti-communists to labor movement activists, even anti-apartheid activists, as well as public intellectuals like the post-colonial studies theorist Edward Said and the left-wing journalist Alexander Coburn. Moreover, we'll also discuss why it remains important to take a critical view of the American surveillance state, even as some voices caution against it, arguing that agencies like the FBI are taking on far-right-wing groups as potential domestic terrorist threats. All that and more in the conversation to follow with David H. Price, author of The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. Welcome to Parallax Views. David H. Price, author of the new book, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, JG? Very good, very good. Been feeling a bit under the weather the past few days, but working through it. Uh, so I know I've interviewed you on the show before, 
And some of my listeners are familiar uh, with your previous work, particularly weaponizing anthropology. So maybe you could go over uh, weaponizing anthropology in brief and how maybe that led you to eventually writing the American surveillance state, how the U.S. spies on dissent. Yeah, um, about 30 years ago, I started getting very interested in seeing what I could find using Freedom of Information Act requests about interactions between American anthropologists, the CIA, uh, the FBI, and and military agencies. And I found a treasure trove of, of documents. I mean, to be honest, I've lost count of how big my pile is. Um, I know it's over, it's probably between 80 and 100,000 pages of, of documents I've had released. A lot of this is historical. Um, I looked at anthropologists being persecuted by the FBI uh, during the McCarthy period in one book. I did another book on anthropologists in World War II, and then a book about anthropologists and the, the CIA during the Cold War. And while I was working on this, of course, we had our terror wars, um, you know, post, post 9-11. And that really dragged me away from that uh, project, part, parts of that project, to, to work on uh, what wound up being the book Weaponizing Anthropology, which much of that I wrote in bits and pieces for uh, Counterpunch magazine, critiquing um, revelations of ways that anthropologists and other social scientists were being brought in for 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 various uses in the um, so-called global war on on terror. And that's what Weaponizing Anthropology was, it was a very critical look written, written for general readers um, about developments uh, in using social science to monitor and control uh, both people here in the U.S., but uh, essentially people abroad also. Would you be able to give maybe like just are there any examples you could point towards to um, let my listeners know exactly what you mean by this sort of intelligence agency use of social science? Yeah, probably the most famous one from the, uh, the terror wars was a program called the Human Terrain Program, uh, Human Terrain Systems. And this is a program that uh, the roots of it really were in about 2005, 2006, and around 2007, uh, the program became public. And the claim of the program was that uh, there would be anthropologists embedded, uh, anthropologists and other social scientists embedded with uh, troops downrange, and that they would have these incredible uh, technologies that they could use to uh, sort of map who's who with within the groups they were engaging with. And the claim was that this would reduce casualties, uh, that the anthropologists would be able to know who the friendlies were and who the others weren't, which of course is a form of targeting uh, and raises huge ethical issues about what is anthropology good for? Um, and, you know, of course, there is a history of anthropology being used in colonial projects and neo-colonial projects and World War II, Vietnam, and, and so on. And I suppose it was fortunate that I already was starting to get a handle on this history when this latest iteration of this uh, rose up. So then with regards to the American surveillance state, uh, what, what, how would you describe the ba basic thesis? Because this is not a book that's just saying, oh, you know, people like uh, individuals like J. Edgar Hoover uh, were just out of line or incompetent. 
you're saying there's a much bigger picture here about um you know agencies like the fbi essentially acting as uh the secret police of american capitalism yeah that's that's very much a part of the thesis and in, in fact that that line comes from philip ag uh you know a central intelligence officer uh, who later blew the whistle on all sorts of activities were going on. And AG very famously said that the, the CIA's role was to be the secret police of American capitalism. And that relates to the thesis here. People like Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, the longtime director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, people like Hoover were not accidents. Uh, Hoover was, you know, very vicious in his job. And really what he was doing was protecting uh, the mainstream, not mainstream isn't quite the, the right word, uh, the prominent uh, forms of capitalism that, that were existing in the United States. And so that meant uh, tracking, monitoring, and harassing uh, activists for racial equality, uh, which I, I was startled when I wrote my book on McCarthyism to find out how many anthropologists who had been activists for racial equality campaigns in the 1950s uh, and 40s, and of course into the 60s, were targeted uh, by FBI operations, some of which were COINTELPRO uh, operations. And th this is a real consistent theme that I look at in this book, is how people who are critics of capitalism, critics of capitalism in the United States, um, of uh, international forms of capitalism, were these frequent targets I could document through the Freedom of Information Act uh, for these sort of surveillance and harassment campaigns. How did this become, I, I guess, how is this institutionalized, this kind of surveillance within um, these agencies like the FBI? Like, how did the FBI become sort of this secret police for uh, capitalism? Um, some of it, I would say, was very intentional in terms of what was you know, being enforced and, and what wasn't. If you look at the roots of the FBI, uh, before the Federal Bureau of Investigation was created, you had, uh, you know, things like the Palmer raids uh, that were done uh, in the early part of the 20th century, targeting the foreign born uh, as being this source of this infection of, of communism and socialism and labor unions and all of these sorts of issues. And the FBI saw very much uh, as part of its job uh, to deal with with these sorts of threats, and so you know, before the era of McCarthyism, I mean, you know, th there's this fear that figures like Hoover would have over anarchists and communists, and even before we really get full on into the McCarthy Red Scare period. Yeah, ab absolutely. And then, of course, you know, you have the Second World War, where it's very much all hands on deck, and you did have a lot of American radicals. Uh, that were sometimes affiliated with communist party or socialist parties or uh, anarchist groups that were working in very sensitive um, intelligence positions during the Second World War. And Hoover was sort of set on the bench during this. I mean, of course, the FBI was doing um, background clearances for any sort of intelligence. That's, that's always been a function. Uh, of of the FBI for people in security positions within the the government, uh, whether it's military or civilian government. So the FBI was always collecting this sort of information, and of course we were allies with the Soviet Union during the war. Uh, but very quickly at the war's end, as 
uh, before the Cold, Cold War really even had a name, you could start seeing the FBI um, sort of lining up, being really concerned about people who may have been too friendly with the Soviets uh, during the war. And then, you know, and then once once it becomes full on Cold War, uh, the FBI was very much in a position with Hoover being a very meticulous collector of, of data. You know, he was collecting things that he had no idea, um, you know, what there might be uses for. Uh, and so he was sitting on this treasure trove of, of documents. And once things started to turn in the Cold War, um, he was in a very powerful position, having collected all this information. I, I'm sort of interested in, I, I guess, the era of surveillance from, you know, the 60s onward. But I, I want to delve into the history of this, maybe the, the 1940s and the 1950s. And a lot of uh, your book, uh, particularly part two, uh, Lanting Those with a Communist Taint uh, deals with, I think, that era. So maybe you could give a rundown of what was happening in the 40s and the 50s when it came to surveillance. Yeah, in the, you know, in the in the 40s, um, which is really the era when Americans start to have telephones. Um, you know, there's a one of the chapters in here is a, the social history of the wiretap, uh, where I look at shifts in American attitudes about surveillance, uh, about telephone surveillance and things like that. And, and during, the, um, during the 1930s, when telephones were relatively rare things, when elites had telephones and uh, Americans might have access to a shared telephone, not just a party line, but one phone between many households and things like that, um, when there would be uh, like bootlegger, uh, you know, there was a very famous bootlegging uh, case where a, a sheriff was was listening in. The polling data is Americans were outraged at the concept of that someone could technically do these things. And there's enough longitudinal data about American attitudes um, about this sort of surveillance that uh, it really is you need something like 9-11 to scare the hell out of people, uh, to get them to very quickly sort of, uh, sort of, sort of give this up. Um, but I think, I, <laughs> I think I lost the thread of your original question. Do you? <laughs> no, I just meant, I, I, I was, I was hoping to get an overview of oh, yeah. the kind of surveillance in the forties and the fifties. Yeah. So, so but, real quick, that is a very interesting point you bring up that um, at that time there was like a, a sort of shock that American uh, people had when it came to surveillance uh, it's it's weird because nowadays I, I think people almost accept, uh, you know, government surveillance as a given. Yeah, it's it's astounding uh, to consider how quickly we've all just become used to corporate surveillance, uh, government surveillance of, of various sorts. I mean, one moment for me, I, I think back to from my own life is I remember in the 19, mid 1980s, uh, late 1980s. Uh, reading an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal about this this company that I don't think they exist anymore, you know, Lotus Company. They invented really the the first spreadsheet uh, that Microsoft <laughs> took, as they do. Um, and Lotus was announcing they were going to release on CD-ROMs, you know, these <laughs> these platters of a phone book for the entire country, uh, listing everyone and. And people were so outraged at, at this sort of uh, compilation of data that the project just fell apart and was, was shut down. 
Whereas, of course, this is just a few seconds of Googling. Uh, you can you can find this sort of, and we accept it. We embrace it. We accept that there are these cookies tracking our our purchases, not just our purchases, but news stories that we're looking up uh, and things like that. So there's been, of course, this this desensitization, the socialization into a world of surveillance. Um, you know, as a as a time traveler myself, now in my 60s, having traveled here from a, a distant period, uh, I remember how freaked out people were when lights at, at uh, traffic stops and things like that showed up. Uh, and now we don't think anything of it, that these, you know, this sort of surveillance is going on everywhere. I mean, you remember in uh, the early days of the terror wars, it was 2002 or three, I can't quite remember, there was this announcement of total information awareness program that was out there. And they had like, man, I, I could not have uh, designed a better emblem for it. I mean, it was this completely sci-fi, scary emblem. And the idea of total information awareness is it would be this program where they would just collect everything uh, and have it. Traffic cameras, per, you know, purchases on uh, credit cards and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And Americans got so freaked out, they, they shut the program down. But of course, they still did it. And we know that from the, the sort of Snowden leaks and things like that. So there's been this, you know, the technology has ever increased. And, it, and in many parts, I don't even try and keep up with the technology in this book. Some of the early chapters, right, I talk about here are the sort of developments we know about. My interest in it, uh, and I very much believe this, is that if we know the history of surveillance, if we know which groups are being targeted, it's pretty easy to figure out what these bastards are going to do next with. And I don't know what the technology will be. It could be, you know, these robot insects. It could be, you know, any sort of thing that's out there. Uh, we know they're going to target people who are who have a critique of inequality in this society. And, and I want to get to that um, because one of the cases I was really interested in talking about was the case of uh, Ruth First, uh, an anti-apartheid activist. You have a whole section devoted to her. And maybe we could focus and hone in on that section uh, just for a moment, because I, I did want to talk about maybe the the sort of pre-late um, 1960s type stuff that was going on with surveillance, because you, that second uh, section of the book, part two, uh, that I mentioned before, it, it sort of deals with the late 40s to the early 60s, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's several people I talk about in that in that chapter uh, Gene Weltfish, who was a, uh, or this section, Gene Weltfish was an anthropologist, very radical, working on racial equality. This guy, Archie Finney, who was a Native American, Nez, Nez Pierce Native American, who was trying to collectivize uh, uh, Indian reservations and got the FBI in his case uh, for, for doing this. And he'd spent time in the Soviet Union where he first started really thinking about this. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Ruth, Ruth First, uh, who was a very significant uh, activist in South Africa for for racial equality. And in that chapter, um, I have both FBI materials and then the South African um, secret police materials uh, looking at her. And, and some of this surveillance shows her going out and doing uh, sort of ba very basic ethnographic research. She was uh, you know, she took some training in anthropology and drew on that. She also had social work training and such. And she, 
she was gathering very basic information about racial inequality, uh, not just in South Africa, but elsewhere in Southern Africa, and was was publishing this, um, sometimes in communist newspapers, sometimes in academic journals, and getting the word out on just how bad things were. And the more that she did that, uh, the more uh, surveillance she got. Uh, when she would come to the United States, there's a, a part in, in her FBI file where she was coming to the United States, I think, to Boston to talk to a, 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 a PBS show uh, interview. The FBI was monitoring, you know, what she was doing, who she was talking to, all of these sorts of things. So it, they were they saw their role as um, protecting of you know these systems of of inequality that were out there not just in the united states but but also abroad and you know one of the reasons i i got her file is uh you know there's long been speculation uh that the united states she winds up being die uh, dying being killed uh murdered by a uh, uh package bomb uh that was that was sent to her and there's long been speculation that the us may have been involved in that and you know, no surprise, I did not find the U.S. saying they were involved in that uh, in the files or anything like that. But they, there were some investigatory files that showed up. So it's interesting uh, because I, I think this shows that there, um, there's a bigger history to the American surveillance state than I think some people recognize at times because a lot of people I know, I think we'll see American surveillance as, um, how would I put it, almost like an aberration. It's like this aberration that comes out of the uh, Cold War and the War on Terror. Um, how do you sort of explain the broader history to people uh, when you discuss this topic? Like, it's, it doesn't seem to be an aberration of one era. It seems to actually just be continuous. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. You know, when I started doing this FOIA research, I was I was really interested in seeing what I could find out about um, American anthropologists working with or being maybe sometimes being spied on uh, intelligence agencies while they were doing field work. And, you know, the, the Freedom of Information Act uh, is a very powerful tool if the agencies will comply. But there's there's also the Privacy Act, which says. Uh, in order for you to re read my file or me to read your file, I either need your permission or the, the person, the subject needs to be dead because um, your privacy rights die with you. Um, and so I spent a lot of time when I started off, just, I just collected obituaries. I, I read obituaries. I you know, started doing these really blind requests, hundreds of requests, just asking for any and all files on these anthropologists that were in there. And what I thought I was going to get Getting to your point about this seems like this small sort of circumscribed uh, area of surveillance. I, what I thought I was going to get were uh, things from the 1960s and 70s where anthropologists were doing field work in in sensitive areas, and and they may have found these things. But what I found was this huge level of surveillance on anthropologists in the 1950s uh, that were because anthropologists have always had, for all of our sins, we've always had a very good critique of race, looking at race as a social construct. And within anthropology, uh, one of the early American pioneers of academic anthropology, Franz Boas, um, at Columbia University, 
was very much an activist. He raised his students to be activists. And what I found, the, the first thing I found just startled me that, that there had been this massive surveillance going on in the 40s and 50s of anthropologists who were trying to do very simple, what they thought were simple things like integrate schools, uh, you know, voting rights campaigns and things like that. And anyone who did that uh, would have a file open on them and there would be massive surveillance. And with time, I came to understand, well, it, it of course, that's what happened, because it's not like the Democratic Party uh, was was fighting for racial equality when the Scottsboro boys uh, go down. It's the Communist Party that's going and and doing this sort of ad advocacy. And so you had these anthropologists who may or may not have been socialists or communists or Marxists, but were working on racial equality, uh, would make common cause with these groups that were raising money for, uh, you know, for, for victims of injustice in the North and South and, and elsewhere. So it's, yeah, it's surprising how massive it is. How do you sort of go about explaining to people the way the American surveillance state um, well, I'll put it this way. So the FBI um, and these other agencies will say, well, we're just protecting America. You know, we're protecting uh, the American people. You know, we're in a we're in a Cold War with Russia or we're at war with this abstraction, uh, this war on terror. This is all necessary uh, to the, the public and the greater good. Uh, what would your response be to the sort of usual answers we get about why maybe this kind of surveillance is uh, supposedly necessary. That's actually a very, <laughs> that's a hard nut to crack because once people believe that these sorts of suppressions of uh, privacy and individual rights are necessary, uh, it's very hard to convince people that uh, these, these acts of surveillance are, are violations of freedom uh, that, are, that are going on. Uh, and, and one of the problems is there was so much anti-communism on the left and right uh, in the 1950s, you know, 40s, late 40s, 1950s, into the early 60s, uh, that it's really difficult to, to untangle all this. The, the roots of anti-communism or the, the Red Scare run, run really, really deep. I mean, one of the, one of the things, uh, and this relates a lot to a, a different project that I'm working on now, is once you realize that it's it's not just that Hoover and the FBI were this force of anti-communist scare uh, in in the United States, they were the right wing part of it. They were attacking people on the left who were engaging in progressive activities um, under the guise that that they were communists or that they were somehow you know working for the Soviets or, or these sorts of things, rather than working on domestic programs. But at the same time, you had um, left wing uh, people from the left that were engaging in massive amounts of, of communism. And there's there's sort of two parts to that that I think most people don't think through. One is, you know, the, the significance of the uh, Truman loyalty oaths. Um, there's a there's a fantastic book I can't recommend enough uh, uh, called Loyalties by Carl Bernstein. Uh, and boy, I read this when I was in my 20s, and it, it had a huge impact on me. So in this book, uh, Carl Bernstein, who's, of course, famous from Woodward and Bernstein, tells the story of his father 
And his father was one of the few lawyers uh, in the United States who would defend uh, people who came up on the Truman, the, the Truman loyalty, oath, which is a precursor to McCarthyism. And it is exactly McCarthyism. And one of the things, having read a lot more and, and, and done research on, you know, this Democrat, Truman, uh, what he did is, uh, of course, when, when Truman goes up for election, uh, he has a real competitor on the real left, uh, Henry Wallace, right? His uh, Roosevelt's previous vice president, Henry Wallace, uh, runs against him. Uh, and it, and it, it looked like he was going to split the vote enough. Uh, that Truman would wind up losing. And one of the things that happens when Truman does prevail is he gets vengeance <laughs> on the federal employees who were su supporting the progressive in the race by doing this, uh, this witch hunt. By, and it's people who belong to all these groups that were involved in racial equality, uh, people who form book co-ops and things like this. Uh, and it was really targeting people who had supported his opponent. I mean, imagine uh, in in 2000, right? If if Al Gore uh, had 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 any common sense and been willing to fight and taken the presidency that he won uh, and done it, and then gotten uh, revenge on those people within the party who had support who had supported Nader. It's a very similar, you know, it's a different parallel universe out there, but it's very much that sort of dynamic. So you have, uh, it's not that the Republicans are doing this. It's this weapon that people, people can use. Uh, and there's, of course, within the, the, while the FBI is this right wing anti-communist uh, tool that's going on, the CIA is very much a liberal uh, anti-communist tool that's out there. And really, one of the reasons why the CIA got involved in running so many, so many of these funding fronts, which is a project I'm, I'm working on now, uh, in the 1950s and early 60s, was because many of these programs were, were sort of soft power things that Congress wouldn't fund that were anti-communist programs that they were, uh, that they were doing. So these roots of anti-communism uh, or scares about collectivization and, and all of these sorts of things, they're, they're really deep in, in American society, and they're upheld by the corporate business interests uh, that have always been very powerful here. Could you delve into that a little bit more, this idea of, um, you know, there being a, a sort of more right-wing anti-communism and then uh, a, a liberal anti-communism, and maybe how those two interact. I know you have a, a whole... Uh, section on, you know, the FBI going after liberal anti-communists. Yeah, I mean, one of the chapters, there, there are two chapters that are sort of bookends to each other's uh, in here. And these look at the files of Andre Gunderfrank, who was a uh, uh, an economist, Cold War economist, who uh, challenged American hegemony, the hegemony of the North, by talking about dependency theory, by talking about, uh, you know, the power of debt. Uh, that how the United States controls the underdeveloped world through uh, through debt. And it's a very vital critique for understanding the Cold War and these sorts of things. And in, in that instance, um, you know, Gunder Frank very much became a man without a country. Uh, he was because he was writing these critiques of capitalism's control of the global south. Uh, he he had come to the United States when he was a child. His father was a German 
uh, satirical novelist, you know, sort of like a Kurt Vonnegut figure of, of Germany who fled for his life because he was on Hitler's kill list. Uh, and Gunder, uh, Andre Gunder Frank came, came to the U.S. Uh, when he was a kid, but he didn't have a U.S. passport. Um, he just could get these sort of temporary, um, I'm forgetting what the, the word for it is, sort of travel papers for things. And once he started writing these vicious economic critiques, uh, and strangely enough, he was a, a student, a doctoral student of uh, Milton Freeman's, uh, who, you know, the dialectic is a powerful thing, uh, you know, who, who very much turned on this sort of economics. And so in this case, you find him, uh, he's not a liberal, he's a radical uh, being attacked uh, by the FBI's monitoring him. They're trying to keep him out of the country, he keeps doing these uh, visiting teaching positions. And they're, they're really concerned about his ideas uh, coming home here. But the bookend piece for this is Walt Rostow. And Walt Rostow uh, was, uh, you know, the economist who, who came up with modernization theory, right? This development theory that, uh, that extended incredible amounts of debt with very little uh, very little to show for it with these promises of modernization through through later agencies like the United States Agency for International Development and things like this. And it, it's the epitome of the liberal Cold War stance. I mean, in fact, his his main book has uh, has the, the subtitle of, you know, something like a anti-communist manifesto, where he's saying through this debt, we will we will take the underdeveloped world. We will make them rich. We'll make the whole world by like Texas is sort of his his thesis in this book. But the bizarre thing that I, I show in here is he had this massive FBI file. Um, the FBI was just because he was looking at issues of poverty. Uh, they thought he must be some sort of communist when, in fact, he was doing the ultimate liberal anti-communist dance of you know, by using soft power, by using aid to try and get people to, to come over to our side and do these sorts of things. So one part of the book that I was really interested in talking about with you is because I did not know about this at all for some reason, but apparently the FBI did decades of surveillance on a man by the name of Haskell Wexler. And if people don't know who Haskell Wexler is, uh, he was a very influential cinematographer and filmmaker who made one of my favorite films, Medium Cool, with uh, Robert Forster. And uh, that movie is a fascinating movie because it's filmed during the Democratic National Convention riots in Chicago in the late 60s. So wh what led the FBI to do surveillance on, of all people, Haskell Wexler, this you know famous cinematographer and filmmaker? Yeah, it, it's. I found his, uh, that, that file was a joy to receive because, you know, I do these blind requests. Right. I, I like you, I'd been a fan of his work. And when, and when he died, uh, you know, I just went on my fishing expedition. I just sent out the request and, and, and back it came. So, you know, he was the, the son of a prominent Chicago uh, electronics manufacturer distributor, radios and microphones and things like that. Um, but he had a very progressive upbringing, you know, with people like Studs Terkel. Uh, sort of being in the circle he was in. So he was a lefty uh, from the beginning, and he had money. Uh, his dad gave the, the children a lot of stock when they were young. And he 
he did not squander his privilege. He remained very much committed to the left. He would uh, support leftist causes that were out there. And of course, this really concerns the FBI. When you have somebody with money uh, who's drawn to progressive causes, uh, they get this different sort of alarm that's out there. So the FBI started investigating him. They wondered if uh, during World War II, if he might have been a communist and all of these sorts of things. And he was involved in many groups that were fighting for racial equality, uh, equal pay, you know, housing, uh, public, public subsidy of housing, all these sorts of things that anyone who worked on those sorts of things in the U.S. in this period be, uh, became suspect. But <laughs> with time... Uh, the subjects of his film uh, became radical enough that maybe he earned this sort of, uh, I mean, I, I mean that facetiously, I suppose. Uh, but there was there, there turned out to be a reason uh, for looking at him because he was making films uh, like on the there's a famous film he made on the weather underground. Well, while they were underground, uh, going to an undisclosed location and, and filming and talking to them, um, you know, going to uh, Vietnam with Tom Hayden uh, and Jane Fonda for this, you know, infamous, uh, this infamous film that's made. And, and even things, um, you know, even some of his more mainstream theatrical releases often had this sort of radical edge uh, uh, to them. There, there's one of the cases, one of the things that shows up in his file, and this wound up in the news was, uh, with one of his films, I think it's the Weather Underground one, the FBI, he's doing his own sound work um, because they're keeping such tight security uh, on this because the FBI is actively hunting for the people in the film. And the the owner of the sound studio is like listening and hearing, <laughs> hearing things that give him enough concern that he... Uh, he becomes an FBI informer with the sort of information that's that's going on there. So Wexler made a number of, of mainstream films, but he always kept this radical edge and worked on small projects, uh, sometimes with other other filmmakers and such. And and one of these uh, involving the the Weather Underground while while they were in hiding, uh, he had to keep a high level of security in terms of what was going on. And so he did his own sound editing and things like that that he wouldn't normally do. Uh, and so he was using a studio to do this, a third, a third party studio. And the owner became very concerned about the sort of noises that, that, um, that he was hearing, uh, in these tapes. And essentially, uh, the owner of the studio became an FBI informer monitoring the sort of work that he was doing and, and reporting on it. So even the, you know, the documentary filmmaker can become, can be seen as a threat for doing these things. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's interesting because I, I know you don't necessarily cover these cases in the book, but it, it's fascinating when you look at how many people during the Cold War that were just, you know, entertainers or from the entertainment industry were being monitored by the FBI, often for no reason uh, or no good reason, in my view. You know, I, I've even read there's I'm looking at it right now. There's literally an FBI record, uh, a whole file on Herbert Cowrie, uh, otherwise known as Tiny Tim, the guy who's saying tiptoe through the tulips. Uh, because I guess they thought, oh, what if he's like a homosexual subversive? Um, and then famously, I think the band The Monkees uh, were also targeted for their, you know, alleged anti-Vietnam War activities. So I, I think that gives an insight into just how um, broad of a net uh, 
the FBI had when, you know, supposedly fighting the Cold War. They seem to have went after uh, everyone. Yeah, it's it's crazy the the depth of this. One of the one of the chapters in here was it was a program I never heard of or thought anything of. I came upon it as a reference in one of the the files I was at, and this is a program. It still exists today where the FBI for federal prosecution, so it has to be in a federal court, uh, when the juries are being seated, not telling the defense, the prosecution, uh, the, the, the FBI can go to the prosecutor when they have the jury pool for selection and say, okay, we ran everybody's name through our index. Here's what we have. And through this program, I, I list several different instances where this happened. It's amazing. There, there are trials where something like a third to half of the jurors who are called uh, files exist. And there, there are things like, uh, and, and the rules are they can't go out and do a new inquiry. So it has to be that these were already existing files. And a lot of it will be, uh, you know, somebody, it'll be a background check. Uh, so, for example, you know, I've had I've had students uh, who go on to do federal employment uh, in the future and somebody comes and interviews me or uh, to find out uh, about their character and things like that. In the old days, it used to be the FBI did it, of course, in neoliberalism. We outsource everything. So there are these agencies that run around and do it. But in the 50s and 60s, when the FBI would do these uh, investigations, they would ask the questions about the person, but then they would also say, Subjects seem to have an unusual number of books in their house, you know, because people who read books are uh, potentially dangerous. Or these are the sorts of books that are there. Or I noticed uh, this around the house. And, I, you know, and, and so they're doing these sort of snooping investigations all the time that are out there. So the fact that you could have a randomly chosen jury and the FBI has existing files on a third or half the people. Sometimes it was magazine subscriptions that uh, the FBI were on watch lists uh, for for magazines and and different sorts of publications uh, that are out there. So it's a huge dragnet. What's what's the most shocking example for you of just uh, the, the sort of FBI snooping measures taken over the years? Like if you had to if you had to draw out one instance, just give my listeners an idea of how crazy this all is. Oh, man. I'm probably going to draw a blank. Let's see. Um, you know, to me, it's the little things. Uh, I'm not. I'm not surprised when there's a, uh, you know, a prominent person or somebody who who they suspect of some sort of of wrongdoing. Uh, but I, I have to admit, when I first started reading these files, and there were a lot of people that were doing sensitive work during the Second World War, and the FBI would go out and do these, these sort of background checks, um, I was amazed at how much information they would try and gather, both about the person, the, the neighbor who the interview was being done with, and about the person, and that whatever they gathered would be written up in the initial file, and then it would become almost like a game of telephone, where this would echo for 20 years in the person's file, where, and sometimes there would be distortions that happen, but it would be just even these small, uh, small little things that go on. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the real consistent things that I, I, I'm really bothered by 
um, is if anyone had a foreign accent, uh, the neighbors, they would talk to him. And you can just imagine the, the not even hidden racism that people had in the 50s. It's still there today. They've just learned to hide it uh, in, in different sorts of ways. But, you know, people would be labeled as communists. I, I just looked at a, a, an old file of, I hadn't looked at in a long time talking, talking to a filmmaker who's working on a project. And I was, I, I had forgotten this, that this person had come to the United States when he was a child and had a Russian accent and <laughs> was very anti-communist, but his neighbors were saying, we suspect he might be a communist, be, you know, basically because of the sort of accent that he had. And the FBI Rather than putting a note saying this person is obviously batshit crazy because this person is doing all this anti-communist stuff would say, well, this is worth considering. So it's to me, it's it's more the, the sort of small things that are in there and how powerful they became and, and how much they grew. But OK, here <laughs> here's my favorite. Um, yeah, I don't know why I didn't think of this right away. So one of the anthropologists uh, I, I wrote about is this guy named Melville Jacobs. And Melville Jacobs had been a uh, student of Franz Boas in the early early 20th century in New York. And he'd been a member of the Communist Party uh, in the 1930s, uh, when many intellectuals uh, had been. Uh, he, he quit after a couple of years. And after World War II, uh, 1947 or eight, uh, here in Washington State, where I'm located, he was a professor at the University of Washington, and there were these. Uh, there, there was this crazy sheriff. Uh, this is before McCarthyism, uh, named Albert Canwell, who became a member of the. Uh, he originally been a sheriff from Spokane. He became a member of the State House, and he held these hearings hunting for hom communists. Uh, again, this is 1947, 48. This is before McCarthyism. And they were McCarthyistic hearings uh, looking for communists that were government employees, you know, state state of Washington uh, employees. And he targeted these, I think it was seven professors at the University of Washington. Mel Jacobs was one of them. And Jacobs came and uh, testified and he talked all about himself. He talked about why he joined the party because they were working on, he was working on these racial equality campaigns. He talked about why he joined. He didn't like the ideologues in the party. And then Canwell asked him for names. Who else did you see at the party? Did you see your wife best? Did you do this? And Jacobs did the right thing. He said, well, I'll tell you everything about myself. I'm not a rat. I'm not going to talk about other people. If you can figure out who they are, call them in. I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. And he came within an inch of losing his job. Some of the professors lost their jobs. So I was very interested in his FBI file. And when it came, it was large, you know, hundreds of pages. And in there, I found this document uh, from the, I think, 1949 annual meetings of the American Anthropological Association, where um, there had been a series of threats, pre-McCarthy threats, Red Scare was starting. Jacobs uh, had had to fight for, they tried to take his tenure away. He had succeeded. There was an anthropologist at the Ohio State Museum who'd lost his job. There were these other incidents that were coming up. And so during the business meeting of the American Anthro Association annual meetings, uh, 
a dozen people stood up and said, we have to form a committee for academic freedom because this shit's coming and we need to be prepared and, and have some sort of protection in place for our academic freedom. And I found in Jacob's file this five-page single-spaced letter that said, now, dear J. Edgar Hoover, I, I don't mean for anything bad to happen to any of these people, but uh, the Communist Party was obviously present at, at this meeting uh, where these 12 people stood up and uh, spoke for having a committee for academic freedom. And I don't want anything bad to happen to these people. But here are the 12 people who did it in a paragraph on each of them. So there was this informer letter uh, that was in there. And the name was redacted uh, for the person who wrote it. And so I got obsessed with trying to get this redacted. And the, the clause that it was redacted under was the privacy clause, which is appropriate that the person who wrote it, you know, if they're still living, um, their privacy needs to be protected. So when I wrote my appeal, I, I had made, I'd read every obituary of every American anthropologist, I'd made an index and I sent it to the FBI and said, well, if the, the person who wrote this name is on this list, um, I'd like to have, I'd like to have it released who it is. And they called me up and said, well, you made this list, so why should we trust it? And I said, well, that's a good question. I'm sure it's some sort of felony or something if I'm lying to you and, 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 and doing this. You can get me on that. But this, this list is recognized by the U.S. government because the Smithsonian Institution puts it, uh, Anthropology Museum, has it linked on their website. So they bought that. And six months later, something they sent me the unredacted letter, and it was written by a very prominent uh, anthropologist, George Murdoch, uh, at Yale University, who is, you know, many people report that he was an anti-Semite, and almost every name of the 12 people who stood up and spoke for academic freedom uh, were, were Jewish on, on this list. And at the end of the meeting, the FBI informer, George Peter Murdoch, was made the chair of the Academic Freedom Committee that everyone was calling for. So that, to me, was the most remarkable uh, document that, that I found and had to fight to get, get released. So there's a few more cases I wanted to go over, and I'm glad you mentioned this issue of, um, you know, just racism and surveillance, because I wanted to talk about uh, I'm I'm not as familiar with his work as I should be, although I would say I'm influenced by a lot of his uh, of people that are successors to him. And I'm talking about Edward Said, uh, who's very important to post-colonial theory. Why was he spied on, and and how much of this has to do with him being? I mean, he's a Palestinian American. He writes about uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict a lot. And what role does uh, race play in some of this surveillance? Oh, I think it plays a lot. Um, you know, first you have people that are uh, fighting for racial equality. They become targets. Any, any, you know, anyone who is doing that in the 50s and 60s is going to have some sort of file. And I think and these very aren't much, necessarily even all communists. Oh, no, no. I'm talking about anyone who does that. Yeah, no, that's, you know, when I did wrote my book on McCarthyism and anthropology, lots of people had files and and some were communists. They were very few and far between uh, in, in terms of who had the file. Um, in fact, if you were a communist, I found lots of people, anthropologists who were communists, but they weren't politically active. They were literary communists. And the FBI didn't give a shit. I mean, the FBI didn't care about, you know, 
uh, armchair socialists that were that were doing these sorts of things. And let that be a lesson, right? That activism matters. It's the activism that matters um, as much or more than whatever ideological uh, alignment people uh, people have. But with Saeed, right? He was a Palestinian intellectual um, and who made no qualms about speaking out about Palestinian rights. Um, and, it, you know, in, in many ways was a very uh, genteel person, right? Very refined uh, in terms of his speaking style and all of these sorts of things. I think in some ways that made him that made him a threat. And his FBI file, you know, showed the FBI uh, being very conscious, very aware of what he was doing. Uh, a lot of what shows up in his file are simply newspaper clippings. You know, the FBI was watching what he was doing, what he was saying. When there would be, you know, uh, there was a story, um, I think it was him throwing a rock at a fence or something in, uh, uh, you know, in in Palestine. I think that's what it was, that the FBI starts blowing this up as this act of violence or, or, or something like that. But uh, you know, anyone who's a public intellectual that is speaking about things outside of the bounds of sort of normal, conservative, liberal ways of thinking about things, um, they're going to be monitored in some in some sort of sense. And when it, of course, when it becomes Palestine, uh, which is a very explosive topic, um, you know, there's going to be uh, high levels of surveillance that are that are going on there. I don't think they released. Uh, large portions of this file. Um, there are a lot of people whose files I got. You could just tell that this is just all that they're all that they're going to uh, release at this point, or ever maybe. I was going to say too. There's also uh, some chapters that deal with you know FBI surveillance of um, activists and scholars that were involved in looking at sort of um, South America and, and Mexico and just Latin America. Uh, could you speak a little bit about that? Um. I'm yeah, thinking specifically of um, Angel, I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, uh, Palerm? Palerm, yeah. Palerm. So, I mean, Palerm was involved in the uh, Organization of American States. And part of, part of his work, um, part of his work uh, involved ethnography and archaeology and these sort of traditional sorts of things. But at the Organization of American States, which, you know, had its headquarters in, in Washington, D.C., um, he was really interested in things like land reform and these sorts of issues, collectivization and land reform. And and, of course, keeping uh, the Yankees uh, out of meddling with things south of the border. And just by coming and having this sort of functionary position in the Organization of American States, uh, the the FBI became very interested in all of his activities, doing mail watches, um, monitoring his political activities, his wife's political activities, um, including like uh, very clearly they had informers working inside the uh, OAS, uh, Organization of American States, that were monitoring sort of inner inner office politics. Uh, at one point, Palermo tries to get a, a raise and the FBI is uh, helping people maneuver, uh, monitoring what's happening. They they saw, uh, you know, someone who's speaking out for the rights of uh, other nations in the Western Hemisphere uh, in a very independent sort of way as this sort of threat of needing some sort of monitoring. I also uh, wanted to get into 
and then then we'll start tying it into the bigger picture. But uh, one case that I was really interested in speaking about, especially because he was a huge influence on me in my teenage years, is the FBI file on Alexander Coburn. And uh, this is interesting as well because you've obviously written for Counterpunch, which uh, Alexander Coburn is he's always been uh, tied to Counterpunch, and uh, you know just such an influential thinker on the left. So how did you end up asking for the FBI file and, and doing the FOIA on Alexander Coburn and what came out of that? You know, I, I knew Alex pretty well. Um, character and fantastic writer, uh, writer that he was. And yeah, like you, yeah, he had a huge influence on me uh, developing in terms of my politics and writing. Uh, and, you know, Alex was a remarkably unparanoid person. Um, he... He, you know, on a personal level, I know, uh, having seen him speak in public many times on issues that uh, many in the audience would find upsetting in terms of what he was setting, he just sort of in a jolly way would just sort of power through and not not self-censor himself in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I mean, he, he was often talking about things like um, the CIA and drugs and Gary Webb, but he would talk about it in such a uh, just, you know, jovial way. Jovial, very animated, sort of, of course, you know, we're going to do these things. And, and uh, you know, I, I remember him saying many times, it's like, we're free to say what we want. It's the self-censorship that comes out, you know, and then pause so far, right? This is always the question, you know, what, what happens next with these, with these sorts of things. So it was very natural uh, when he died, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, um, it's, it's been. Uh, to to request his file. His is another one where I suspect there's there's much more going on there. Uh, and of course, he comes from a very radical family. Uh, his father, uh, uh, Claude, uh, was uh, a communist uh, in in Britain. They spent time, you know, in, uh, when he was young, on the lamb, hiding out in Ireland and such. Um, also wrote uh, "Beat the Devil," right? Beat the Devil. Yes, he wrote the the novel that uh, that uh, forms the basis of John Huston's uh, amazing film uh, on on that. So, I mean, he had radical roots, as you know from his uh, from his brothers, also, right? Uh, the the entire family that are amazing uh, political critics that are out there. Uh, and sure enough, his file shows that when he first comes to the United States, uh, he's showing up on the FBI's radar. And then they start doing a little back digging because, you know, he was involved with the new left review, uh, had, had, uh, written for several radical publications on, in fleet street, uh, b- before he came to the U S. So there was a, there was a monitoring of him. There was a, you know, questions of his visa. Um, eventually he wound up getting American U S citizenship. Uh, it was in the, mid 2000s as I, re- I remember when he when he when he got it uh but there were questions about his visa and you had the uh, the INS monitoring what was going on it was very much tied to his political writing and I I do a little background in there about how common this is uh where there are writers uh that the US is not quite happy with the sort of critiques that they have um how how many how, the sorts of problems they can have getting visas uh, just to visit, much less live here, and these sorts of things. So there was enough in his file to show an ongoing pattern of 
looking at who his associates were, what his movements were, and the sorts of things that he was writing about. So it, it's interesting. You said that you suspect there was more going on with, say, the FBI file on an Edward Said or an Alexander Coburn. Uh, why is it that, that certain things are sort of left out or that you, you may not be getting all the files? How, how does that work? And what, what are maybe the reasons that the FBI would have for um, not revealing everything, so to speak? And, and why are they able to do that? Well, I think I, I think one of the biggest reasons is that they're incompetent. Right. Um, I'm not I'm not going to to say it's because they're withholding things. Um, I think they don't respect the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and maybe that is a level of competence, right? If it's that level of, uh, of intent. Uh, but they're also not very good at tracking things down. Uh, years ago, or, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, um, when I was trying to get the, the file on Gene Weltfish, who has a chapter in here about this, this, this speech. And really the reason we have the full speech is the FBI was monitoring her at this, at this conference. Uh, when I was trying to get her file, they wrote back and they said they didn't have anything. And I wrote back and I said, uh, I'm going to do, a, you can do appeals. So first you do an in-house appeal with sort of an ombudsman on, sort of person. Uh, and then you can take them to federal court. So I did an internal appeal, appeal and I, I made an argument. I said, well, either one of two things is happening and they both involve FBI incompetence. The first is you were incompetent and you had this person who was going out during World War II protesting the Red Cross because they were segregating blood, which is a really sort of interesting uh, uh, choice in terms of uh, a protest out there. Um, you weren't monitoring her. And then I listed all of these radical things that she had been doing. So you were incompetent and you weren't actually monitoring somebody that was, you know, uh, saying all of all of these. She made claims about germ warfare during the Korean War. She was fired from Columbia University after appearing uh, before McCarthy, like uh, all of this. And I just go, you weren't monitoring someone who was accused of being a communist by by McCarthy. Uh so there's either that level of incompetence or it's incompetence that you didn't actually look. And a couple of years later, uh, they sent me this massive file that was there. And I really think that was just not not doing their job. And so there is an ob and, you know, sort of objective measure of, of, of that sort of incompetence. I think that's pretty common because they don't respect the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, they don't want to comply with it. So there may be some foot dragging. And also to to pretend to be fair, it's a complicated filing system where some of the stuff got saved, some of it got destroyed, some of it you know got sent to the National Archives. There's this sort of mess of what happens to things. But then some of the stuff, like uh, Saul Landau, uh, his his file in there, I can't remember how big it was, but it was huge numbers, thousands of pages. They said they had, uh, but it was properly still classified uh, and could be, and I found markings in some of the files where it said remain classified until, and then they'd have these dates far in the distant future, uh, you know, 10, 20, uh, 20 years out. So, um, you know, the past remains a contested territory. Uh, so some of this is intentional. Uh, and I think I suspect a lot of it is intentional foot grab dragging or just pure incompetence. Do you think the FBI, uh, how do you think they view, because you're not the only person that that is is making FOIA requests. I think they have a name for 
uh, people who do a high frequency of requests? Do you think they just view this as a, uh, they're like, oh, why are they hassling us? Yeah, and I get that, right? If, if we've we've all spent some time living and working in bureaucracies, and uh, yeah, we're no doubt like flies, you know, that need to be swatted away uh, doing doing this sort of stuff. And there are people who I think do FOIA uh, nuisance FOIA or sun, sunshine uh, act requests, right? That are that are being pests in terms of doing things. I think they're few and far between. Uh, but on a human level, I can understand that sort of response. None of us wants to spend all this this time doing these sorts of things. Uh, but it's the law. They they need to uh, comply with these requests. When it comes to uh, this issue of the, the American surveillance state, how do we tie it all together? Uh, because, you know, this has been going on. You're, you're looking at like a seven decade period here. Uh, in your book. So how do you tie it all together just for people that are new to this topic? You know, I, I say follow the money. Keep keep your eye on the, the consistent theme that's that's gone on here is people who are threatening the particular system of inequality that we have here in the United States and around the gl- world. Those are consistently the people who are the targets. So I, I think and that's why I say there's all sorts of stuff about the technology that I don't know. You know, I just assume on some level it will progress to this this next level. And I think we know who the targets will be. And of course, climate change uh, is the issue that we're all going to be dealing with for the rest of our lives. And the next generation will, unfortunately, for a much longer period. And of course, one of the tensions of dealing with climate change is that our capitalist system is this ever expanding of, you know, growth needing economy. And at some level, if we're going to deal with climate change, we have to deal with capitalism, which is what brought us this mess that we're in. So I fully expect uh, that increasingly the FBI will, will be targeting people who are trying to limit capitalism's impact on the environment. So I I think this is the relevance of the book, is we know the technology will change, but under this economic system, I think the pattern will remain, that people who are engaged in this level of activist critique that are actually being, you know, impacting what's going on, they will be monitored whether they're breaking laws or not the fact that they're trying to change this system. And maybe it becomes against the law to try and change this system. I was going to say in that regard, too, it's funny because I I recently interviewed um, a former CIA analyst who now works for the Cato Institute. And they're they're very much like really libertarian, right? But uh, this uh, senior fellow at the Cato Institute that I interviewed, uh, Patrick Eddington, we were talking about um, FBI surveillance of just activists over the years. And I thought, you know, okay, he's from Cato. Maybe he'll talk about um, the surveillance of, if, is there surveillance of right-wingers? And, you know, his basic response was, no, it's, it's really not right-wingers that the FBI has ever seemed to care about. Um, it's all, It always does seem to be these left-wing activists. And that's coming from someone that's involved with a very libertarian uh, institute. So it, it is interesting. I mean, it seems like uh, it's the left that is always the target for these things, or almost always. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, Hoover did not do massive investigations of the Klan at the same sort of level, right, that he was doing of supposed communists and so on. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, it, it, has has there been, I'm assuming there's FBI files on things like the John Birch Society and whatnot, but it's probably to a much lesser extent. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and those are more tied to specific actions. I mean, we are in this interesting moment where you know, we have the Proud Boys and, you know, these uh, crypto fascist groups that are that are emerging. And we know there is some level of FBI uh, surveillance that's going on. Uh, but in many ways, it's very late in terms of waiting until after they've actually engaged in sort of violent activities that are going on. And of course, there are many members of law enforcement that, that belong uh, to these sort of fascist groups. Uh, so it's it. This investigation of right wingers is is an aberration uh, in terms of the bulk of the sort of activist surveillance that's that's gone on. And it's coming very, very late. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add to that really quickly. Um, it's always interested me that now people are saying, oh, we need to focus more on on dealing with, uh, you know, the threat of, you know, right wing extremism and um, particularly like white nationalists. But. You know, the truth is we were dealing with this long before Trump in a lot of ways. I mean, you had groups running around like the Bruderschwagen or the Order, uh, literally assassinating people like the radio DJ Alan Berg. Um, it seems like people are getting around to this idea of, oh, maybe these groups are a threat to our security. It seems like they've come around to that very late in the game. And and you have sort of the, I don't know, MSNBC crowd that are, you know, doing this this liberal uh, oh, the FBI will save us uh, sort of thing. And that, I mean, that's where we need to hear, you know, beware the Jabberwock, my son. It's like there is there is something else going on here. Uh, I uh, After 9-11, you had the same thing. Oh, the CIA, if only they'd known. Well, they're not going to know things like this. Don't empower them. They're 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 not going to start getting it right. I was going to ask, what is the process like of, of requesting a FOIA? Like, I know a lot of people that uh, have asked me, they're like, well, how, how do I do a FOIA request? I, I, is it difficult? You know, what, what are the ins and outs? It's very simple. Um, there are websites like FOIA machine that are out there that, that have automated it very much. So what you need is an organization or a person that you're going to request on. And then it's uh, the Freedom of Information Act is for federal agencies. Different states have different sunshine laws and different ways of doing it. So for FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, the federal act, um, you uh, pick a person uh, and they need, you either need to have their permission or they need to be dead because of the Privacy Act. And you write a very simple letter that says, uh, dear specific agency, so FBI, CIA, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Energy, I am requesting any and all files on this person uh, in order for you to identify this person with this name. Uh, here's their birth date. Here's where they were born. And then a few sentences that will help them differentiate from other people with the same name that say like they worked. This is an important thing that they did. They worked in this agency for this and this. So it could be just a paragraph uh, where you do that. I, I often add some mumbo and jumbo language about, you know, please comply with this executive order that says any record over 35 years old, you're supposed to release as much as you can in full. And then you cross your fingers and put a stamp on it and mail it or, or hit send. 
and you include proof of the person's death if it's a if a person and that can be just an obituary um but but you can also do it on organizations um and maybe you'll get some have you ever tried requesting i i know people that have requested a file on themselves do you think there's a file on you oh probably um you know i i did long ago uh in my in my younger uh earlier academic career i worked in the middle east so i studied arabic um you know i did dissertation work started in yemen wound up in in egypt uh and there were just basic little state department stuff showing up in there you know passport and where i'd been and, and this sort of stuff i haven't bothered since then um you know i've i've had uh one of my favorite book reviews uh i don't i'm not big on reading my book reviews but i really like this one was uh in the cia's public uh publication studies of intelligence which is their own journal parts of which are classified parts of which are public and and the the person really hated my book um and <laughs> i i tried to get another publisher to use that as a blurb you know <laughs> on 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 a different book but you know if things like that exist well that that gets filed and goes somewhere it's it's innocuous uh so i i, I assume I, but like Alexander Coburn, I don't let it stop me. What do I care? You know, I, I have to ask, too, because I feel like when we broach these topics of, you know, the, the sort of panopticon-like surveillance state that we have in a lot of ways in the U.S., uh, people immediately will try to shut down and say, uh, you know, th this sounds like tinfoil hat, you know, uh, it's like that QAnon stuff. How can you be? talking about this so how do you respond to people that just have that sort of knee-jerk reaction assuming that any discussion of these sorts of topics is uh sort of like right-wing conspiracy alex jones Infowars type talk how do you push back on that you know i mostly don't push back i say you know there is a lot of crazy stuff people say about surveillance and things like that there are people that are this sort of different level of paranoia and stuff and that's why i do academic work on this. Um, I go, I stick with documents. Uh, you know, the, I wrote, I wrote this book, Cold War Anthropology, that's about the CIA and anthropology. And it's a, I don't know, it's like a 350, 400 page book, however long it is. And it could have been twice as long if I put in there things that I think happened, but I can't prove. So I, I really stick to what I'm able to document. And I don't assume that's this whole story. Uh, so, you know, there, there is a lot of crazy paranoid tinfoil hat stuff, uh, that's out there. I try and stick to what I can show and every now and, and I will also include, there's this whole other thing that may be going on. We just can't prove it. Uh, and maybe historically someone else can prove it. I just had two more main questions since we, we were talking about the FBI, uh, versus the CIA during the cold war. Um, I think some people are surprised. Uh, but when you say that the, lip, the the CIA was more a liberal institution of anti-communism. Uh, so maybe I know this is off topic from the main issues discussed in the book, but w what do you think people misunderstand about the FBI and the CIA during the Cold War and the different types of anti-communism that existed? You know, the roots of the CIA um, are at Yale. Right. And and they're they're drawing some of their best people who came from like the literature departments and things like this. These were 
New Deal Democrats. These were Cold War liberals in much the sense that JFK was a Cold War liberal. LBJ were were Cold War liberals. Cold, Cold War liberals wanted to fight the Cold War, um, sometimes with guns, right? Uh, but a lot of the time they wanted to fight it with AIDS. They wanted to, you had this patron-client relationship with the underdeveloped world where people were fighting for the hearts and minds of people in the global South. And the CIA was doing it. I don't want to say they were a bunch of nice people running around giving everybody candy because they were running coups and murdering people and death squads and all of this sort of stuff. But they were also doing things. I mentioned the the funding fronts, right? Uh, funding fronts were are really sort of the perfect example where they would find liberal scholars that were doing work that aligned with pro-democracy, anti-communist campaigns or were aligned with these sort of aid programs that were out there. And these people weren't getting enough funding, so the and, and Congress wasn't going to do it because there were loud enough voices of conservatives in Congress saying, we don't need a bunch of aid going to foreign people. And this is what these funding fronts did. They funded people that were doing work that was interesting enough to themselves uh, to do this, but it wound up having these sort of often subtle, sometimes not so subtle, anti-communist messages uh, that, that were going on out there. So, I mean... You know, lots of debate about was Kennedy going to get us out of Vietnam or, you know, not and this. And I, I tend to not believe that he was going to get us out. I know there are smart people who know more about it than me who say, oh, yes, he was he was really going to pull out. Well, on some level, it, that was a very liberal sort of war. Uh, and LBJ, uh, in many ways, was a liberal who who continued this war in all sorts of ways. So, uh we, we, I think there's some sort of retcon, you know, some sort of retroactive continuity going on when we, we try and say that the, the CIA was not this liberal organization. Um, it certainly was. And I, I mean, I'm saying that from a radical perspective, right, uh, in, in terms of it. But the liberal anti-communism was as powerful as the uh, conservative anti-communism in the Cold War. Right. And, and you would say that the, the FBI represents, especially under Hoover, I guess, the more right wing brand oh, of anti-communism. Yeah. Okay. With COINTELPRO and absolutely. The last thing I wanted to touch on, um, because I just thought of it and I think it deserves um, mention, is you, you had mentioned this issue of sort of MSNBC uh, liberals that are like, well, no, the, the FBI are our friends, the CIA are our friends, they could, you know, they'll, they'll stop this kind of domestic terrorism that we're seeing crop up now. How do you respond to those people? Like what, what do you think um, they're getting wrong in, in terms of that uh, sort of sentiment? Because I, 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 to an extent, I understand why the sentiment's there. Like we are worried about things like domestic white supremacist terrorism and whatnot, but where do you think people are going wrong? Is it just a matter of, you know, history shows that Yes, you know, maybe these agencies could go after right wing terror groups, but it seems like uh, they're they're not going to stop there. Yeah, no, I think that's part of it. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, and, and a lot of this comes from the insanity uh, right after in 2001, right after 9-11, where you had people on the left and right saying, 
oh my God, grow the intelligence agencies. They will protect us and all of these things. And nothing could be more obvious what would, what would come out of it. And it's what we got, this growth in massive surveillance that's out there. It's not that I don't want the FBI to, uh, you know, when these right-wing fascist groups are breaking the law, they should be arrested. Uh, the FBI should be focusing on these sorts of things. But when people talk about empowering the FBI to do more of this, I'm not convinced that's really what they're going to do. Um, if, if they do, that's absolutely fine with me. I am not looking for them to come and save us because they're a very political organization. They, it would be that they are following and arresting people on the right wing is, is really something new in terms of a, uh, in terms of a focus. And I assume it will be temporary. Do you think also that there's maybe a little bit of revisionism that goes on when it comes to how we talk about the FBI? Because something I notice is that people say, okay, and, and I believe I mentioned this earlier in the conversation, but people will say, okay, it's it's a whole different FBI now. You know, this ain't the days of the Hoover FBI. And I, I almost see people blame Hoover, Hoover for all the bad things that happened with the FBI. Whereas I think your perspective is very different in the sense that Hoover is almost uh, someone that that fit into the way the organization was going to carry out things anyways. It's not that Hoover was necessarily like the one guy. It's just so happens that he was someone that lined up with his ideals in a way that made him very useful to the agency to be its director. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, there's one of the one of the chapters in here, you know, J. Edgar Monster. Uh, I, I, I wrote originally for Alexander Coburn and Jeff St. Clair at Counterpunch were working on a book called The Counterpunch Book of Monsters, where they were going to have a chapter, you know, a chapter on Kissinger, a, a chapter on Thatcher or whatever. And, and the first draft of this was was written in a counterpunchy style uh, of looking at Hoover. And, and really the point I try and make in there, and it's a, a you know biographical summary, is he wasn't a freak. Uh, he was very good at his job. He took skills from, you know, being trained as a librarian to build this very ingenious pre-computer cross-indexing system. Um, and his paranoia was really sort of a gift uh, for pushing this sort of agency to the next level. No one wanted to stop him. Uh, I mean, some people wanted to stop him, obviously, but but he was very, very good at, at what he was doing. And it wasn't just that these were aberrations of his personality, they were selected for, uh, for, for this sort of work. So I, I'm, I am continually amazed. I know exactly what you're talking about when people talk about, well, we need to sort of move on from Hoover. Well, it's like stage one would be renamed the FBI headquarters building. Uh, yeah, I, I was just going to add real quick. Um, it's, I, I guess the, the question that it comes down to is, you know, I, I feel like the way we look at Hoover and, and blaming him for all the ill effects of the FBI over the years, I almost feel like that's like this weird great man view of history view of the FBI, where it's like, well, it's all due to this one guy. And there's no question that, that seems to be asked in that regard about, well, you know, maybe Hoover, maybe the FBI isn't a creature of, of Hoover. Maybe the, the structure itself uh, made Hoover a, a creature of the FBI rather than the other way around. And, and, you know, I, I adopt that view in this book and even talk about 
the similarities. There are obviously differences in degree between various intelligence agencies around the world, whether it's the KGB or Stasi or Savic or you know, what, whatever it is. Uh, there are similarities in terms of what happened, and they need, if they're going to exist, they need to, to cultivate someone like Hoover that will do these sorts of things. So I like your, yeah, your, your pointing out that, that there is this sort of great man of history sort of thing, rather than this is a function, and someone will land in that slot to do it, uh, and Hoover was the right person. Uh, to to land in that slot and do these brutal things that were that were there. Well, I've kept you a bit over time here, so I do want to let you get going. But uh, let my listeners know how they can get a copy of the book, and also what do you hope they get out of not only this conversation, but if they pick up the book, what do you want them to get out of the book? Like, what what what's the main thing you want to stick in their mind? You know, I I think a recurring theme that shows up in the book is how much of who gets surveillance, who gets harassment, um, relates to people that are challenging the fundamental inequalities in our society, uh, inequalities that are built into capitalism. And I think this is an important thing for us uh, to remember because history is full of change. Uh, this is not inevitable. We can bring changes to the system. Uh, it's it's not going to be a Band-Aid. It's going to be really dealing with these questions of inequality that are there. Uh, in terms of where they can get the book, uh, it's put out by Pluto Press. Uh, that's a great spot uh, to buy it. Um, and, you know, it's, a, it's available all the normal sort of places. The full title is The American Sur Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. I guess in closing here, what can be really done to push back against or uh, dismantle this massive American surveillance state? I mean, is, is it a matter of, uh, do, do we have to take the most radical position of, you know, the whole thing, these agencies need to be abolished? Or how do we go forward? Like, what, what do you see as the potential solutions to this issue of the American surveillance state? Good question. We need some sort of Watergate moment. Um, I thought we might be getting close with Snowden. Uh, but that narrative lasted for about two minutes and then people started streaming something else on TV and not paying attention. You know, we have to remember that uh, Watergate, not just Watergate itself, but the post Watergate moment where we had the Pike commissions and the, the church hearings, and we learned an incredible amount of documented um, information about what a secret government was going on in this country and people were pissed off and we had momentary oversight and you know focus and all these sorts of things it can happen again um it may happen uh when the fbi oversteps its investigation of right-wingers um they may be at the charge of doing it and probably the american left will say well we can't join this cause to uh you know stop the intrusions of the fbi because now they're sort of needed but I think so social conditions have to really change for people to be able to get as outraged as they should be about. Do you think right now we're just almost too numb to the American surveillance state and its actions? Or I, I think so. And and I mean, you remember the first time you, I don't know, were looking for some obscure thing to buy. 
Uh, for me, it was a bike part, right? I build bikes and work on some Italian uh, bike part. And I was looking for something. And then the next day I had an ad for something showing up and it's like, what the hell? And then now it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of, the, <laughs> that's part of the numbing of, of, uh, being socialized into, into surveillance. Um, and not just government surveillance anymore, but corporate surveillance. No, it's corporate. It's absolutely corporate. Yeah. And and we've just accepted it. Uh, Europe has a little different take on privacy. Here, we gave up that, that fight. But it can change. Uh, there can be public outrages of, of some sort. And like I say, history, history is nothing but change. And uh, it's, it's stories of rebellions, of people being mad as hell and not taking it. Uh, anymore. And I do, you know, I'm a university professor. I do buy this stuff about the current generation that's coming up is really different uh, than the generations that, that came before. And I think there's a lot of stuff uh, that they can get outraged against and, and carry further. So it, it may it may happen sooner than we think. It may not. It's just a matter of when the fuse is going to be lit. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you again, David H. Price, for coming on Parallax Views. I hope everyone will check out the new book, The American Surveillance State. And honestly, I would recommend David's previous works as well, including Weaponizing Anthropology, which I read in my uh, teenage years. So you've been a huge influence on me over the years, and I really appreciate it. Everyone check out the books. And thank you again, David H. Price. Thank you, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David H. Price, and that you'll check out his new book, The American Surveillance State, How the U.S. Spies on Dissent. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.